Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 32nd episode of The Atlas Society Asks. Today, we are joined by Phil Kirpin. Of course, you know me by now. My name is uh, Jennifer Grossman. I'm CEO of The Atlas Society, uh, the leading organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in creative ways. Um, I'm so excited to have uh, Phil with us before I even get to introduce him. Those of you who have been joining us, you know you can ask us your questions, just type them on into the uh, Zoom chat, or you can ask them live on YouTube where we are also streaming. So uh, Phil is a friend of the Atlas Societies. He is uh, the president of the Committee to Unleash Prosperity and also of American Commitment. Uh, it's an organization dedicated to free markets, economic growth, constitutionally limited government, property rights, and individual freedom. He previously served as the vice president of Americans for Prosperity for five years, a nationally syndicated columnist. Phil writes about politics, economics, um, and the COVID situation involving governmental lockdowns. Uh, and COVID-19. He is the author of the 2011 book, Democracy Denied, about the Obama administration's uh, work to transform America. And um, yeah, and he is a part of the team that puts out the, um, the hotline that is a lifeline to all of us um, here at the Atlas Society. So welcome again, Phil. Thanks for joining us. Uh, my pleasure. And thank you for that last Plug, which is the daily newsletter that I do with uh, Steve Moore and John Fund. And it's totally free if anyone wants to sign up for that committee to unleash prosperity.com. And uh, we're always happy when people sign up because we put so much work into it every day that knowing that people are actually reading it is gratifying. So I, I appreciate uh, the, your kind words about that. Well, they're, they're completely uh, sincere, and I know I speak for everybody at the Atlas Society. We, we read it, we talk about it. Um, Gremlins, let's please put that link that Phil just mentioned in the chat, because I, I strongly encourage everyone to sign up, and we'll also include um, a promo for it in, in our own newsletter. So, Phil, uh, it feels like it was forever ago that I was um, in D.C. with you and Joanna and Steve Moore, uh, and, a, and a group of great people. First of all, how, how are you? Uh, what's, how's your family? What's going on there? Uh, you know, we're pretty, we're, we're pretty good. I mean, it's a weird day here in DC with uh, the storming of the Capitol and all these bizarre sort of third world type uh, images. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I don't know, there's a certain surrealism to it. I mean, the, the, you, know, the, you know, you see these sort of headlines, you know, you know capital under lockdown it's kind of like you know the whole country's been under lockdown for almost a year now and you know i i have to think that that sort of plays into this the fact that you know in this you know sort of in the last 12 months we had left-wing riots and violence in all kinds of american cities and civil unrest and now we've got right-wing riots and the storming of the capital and you know i i'm not sure that any of that would have happened if we didn't impose, you know, sort of severe social isolation and deprivation on people through these COVID policies. I think we've sort of created these powder kegs that have been erupting. Yeah, well, um, when we were at that dinner, I, I think Steve Moore asked you this question and I was 
really stunned by your response when um, he asked what might have the death, just an estimate, the death rate have been if, uh, if we had not imposed these various um, lockdowns around the, the country. And said, I think, I believe it, it might have been as much as half of the death rate we, we have now. Is that something you care to elaborate on? Well, I think the, uh, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of complicated definitional questions when you talk about the death count. Uh, most of the country has been uh, in practice using some variation of uh, any death from any cause uh, within 30 days or in some places even 60 days of a mm -hmm. positive uh, PCR test. And that's a very flawed definition, a very early in the epidemic, you could see the logic of using that because it's, you know, hey, if they died this week, it must have been because of the virus. You know, you could sort of use that simple, simplified approach when you're very early on in a thing. But as it as time goes on, it becomes very flawed because you get a large percentage of the death rate is going to be attributed to it, regardless of uh, whether that's appropriate or not. And in particular, we've had so many problems in the long term care facilities on a lot of legitimate COVID deaths in the long-term care facilities, but almost certainly we've got a lot of just the ordinary old age and related deaths, uh, and they've been uh, misattributed because of the testing regime. And then you've also got all of the increase in deaths because of the lockdowns, and a lot of those are in the long-term care facilities as well from isolation and neglect. Uh, we've also had significant increases in suicides and other things. And so, you know, the normal way that you would sort of avoid the definitional problem is you would say, well, what are the excess deaths? How many more people died this year versus kind of what's happened in recent years? It's really hard to do that this time, though, because you've got so many lockdown deaths. Non-COVID deaths would make it difficult to sort of calculate. But to kind of the way that I think about that question of, you know, what, what would be what would the death count be if we had done nothing, if we maybe if we hadn't even identified this or if we'd just sort of gone about business as usual? I think it would probably be about half of the current headline death count. And I think that because um, it's a little less than half of uh, COVID deaths have pneumonia. And, you know, if you look at the original mm. definition, it required pneumonia, the original definition of what COVID was in some countries like Singapore. They, they don't have a chest x-ray that shows pneumonia. They don't consider it COVID. And so I think that if we kind of say, you know, the, the, the deaths that were probably really caused by this uh, were the ones that had pneumonia, then it's probably about half of that headline count. But it's a, it's a very difficult question to answer um, because uh, the, the sort of the headline scoreboard numbers are based on an, a uh, very flawed definition and kind of the normal way that we would back it out from the all-cause deaths is confounded by uh, the lockdown deaths. Well, speaking of difficult questions, I wanna encourage all of you who have joined us today on Zoom and um, hopefully also on YouTube. I know there's a lot to, uh, to, to distract us today, but I think this is the uh, most important story in the United States um, right now. And uh, so please, I'm encouraging you to, to ask your questions. So Phil, you just alluded to um, pneumonia and, and we're seeing, um, at least those of us reading the hotline, I, I don't know how widely the mainstream media is reporting it, the near uh, total absence of pneumonia um, making its appearance and uh, influenza. influenza. People are attributing that to various um, things, uh, the social distancing, the masks. What, what is your perspective? 
this is sort of the big this is sort of the biggest mystery in the world and uh, i'm sort of amazed that it hasn't got more people trying to figure it out you would think that all of our best and brightest would be trying to kind of solve this mystery uh influenza rsv uh the common cold coronaviruses uh, these things have all disappeared globally, and they disappeared globally right around uh, February of last year, right when Corona went, right when you know, the new coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, appeared. Uh, the old coronaviruses, the influenza viruses, other respiratory infections, uh, they essentially disappeared. And the Southern Hemisphere had no flu season at all. Uh, the Northern Hemisphere this year, we have essentially no flu season so far. Uh, you know, the state here in Washington D.C., we had one positive flu test last week on the week. Uh, the same week in the previous year, it was 371. And you look at the national statistics and uh, they put these out weekly and I always tweet them out because they're so stunning. Uh, you know, the national numbers, I think the most recent week, the five-year average was something like, you know, 6,000 positives and 14% positivity. And this year it was, you know, 75 positives and 0.21% positivity. So. Uh, flu activity is uh, almost completely non-existent. And there are basically three possible theories, uh, that you, or three types of theories for why this is the case. Uh, one is that the virus itself, SARS-CoV-2, is in some way disrupting or blocking these other viruses. This is the viral interference or viral dominance theory, the idea that kind of the big dog virus gets to the susceptible people first. There's no one for the other viruses to infect and they sort of recede into the background. And uh, there's, there's some considerable support for at least the concept that this is possible. Rhinovirus has disrupted flu epidemics in the past. That's kind of how swine flu ended. Uh, and just what flu itself does year to year, the new sort of annual seasonal strain of flu A comes and whatever was the previous year disappears completely. So there is some precedent for this idea of it's just viral interference. One virus comes and knocks the other ones out. Uh, the second type of theory is that it's the policy interventions that school closures or masks or distancing are really effective for all of these other viruses, even though they're ineffective for SARS-CoV-2 and they're ineffective for rhinovirus, which is the, kind of the other type of common cold virus that's actually doing really well this year. It hasn't disappeared at all. It's uh, seemingly everywhere. And that could be because, you know, rhinovirus and SARS-CoV-2 are maybe more aerosol versus those other viruses being more droplet. And so if people are further apart, uh, that could be a partial explanation. The, the problem I think there is that uh, the drop-off in all these other viruses happened before most of those policies were put in. And they happened everywhere globally, including places that didn't have uh, much in terms of policy intervention. But, uh, you know, you could say there was policy intervention in enough places that it disrupted global circulation. So that's certainly one theory. And then, Jennifer, the third possibility is that it's somehow an artifact of testing and that these diseases are still there, but somehow we're missing them because of the way we're doing testing. And a lot of people would suggest that maybe a lot of the SARS-CoV-2 cases that are being diagnosed and put every day in those daily daily dashboards or maybe false positives of people who really have flu or some other virus. Uh, the problem with that theory is that we have a record high number of flu tests being done, at least here in the U.S., and they're almost all negative. And so it's hard to square the idea that there's a lot of it, but it's being misdiagnosed with the fact that we're running so many tests uh, and they're all negative. Now, it's not impossible because it could be that the people who test positive for COVID, they don't even bother to run a flu test. And so if it's a false positive and you really have flu, you wouldn't know. 
And it could be that we're getting so many negatives because they're waiting until a COVID test comes back. And then by the time they test, flu is no longer detectable. And so it is possible that it's somehow an artifact of the way we're doing testing. I really lean towards it being a real phenomenon and a viral interference, viral disruption scenario um, based on the fact that we saw it everywhere in the world. We saw it right when COVID came in and before the policy interventions. And with the number of tests that we're doing, if there really were flu, I think we would be finding it. So I lean towards the first possibility, but those are sort of the three possibilities and it could be a combination of them. But uh, the fact there's so little curiosity on this, I find astonishing because we've never seen a year like this where there's just basically no flu anywhere in the world or very little anywhere in the world. Well, uh, as the audience can see, Phil uh, is very knowledgeable about the, uh, the, the history of this virus, of the lockdowns uh, and the economic consequences. So I really wanna encourage you to take this opportunity, um, very rare opportunity that we've got him on for an, an entire hour, we've got another 45 minutes. So do ask your questions. And as we're gathering those, Phil, tell us a little bit about your story. Um, you are one of the most intense people uh, that I have ever met, and as if somebody's relatively intense myself, that's that's saying something. So, um, what got you interested, in not just this area, but but in economics, and um, and give us a little bit of the behind the scenes of the uh, the hotline. Like, how do you guys put it together? Where did the idea come from? And what are the goals of the committee to unleash prosperity? Well, depending on how far we want to go back, I could say it was maybe my dad giving me uh, Atlas Shrugged when I was 12. You know, if we want to uh, connect it to the theme of your organization, that's probably uh, when I was first introduced uh, to, to sort of uh, the, the idea of, uh, you know, the morality of markets and uh, their superiority as a way to allocate resources and protect individual rights and so forth. And so, uh, you know, I have uh, that background from very far back. But in terms of my uh, professional career, I um, actually, my first job in Washington was working for Steve Moore. I interned for him at the Cato Institute in 1999. And we did a book project. It was actually um, one of Julian Simon's uh, posthumous books uh, called It's Getting Better All the Time that he co-authored with Steve. Mm -hmm. they, chart book with all kinds of ways that, you know, basically in the 20th century, every measure of material well-being improved dramatically. And it just, it sort of, and, and I, um, Steve Slavinsky and I sort of each did half of the book in terms of, you know, putting the charts together and making sense of, you know, the scraps of paper and notes and the stuff that Steve had. And so that was the, uh, the, uh, the first, uh, when I first came to Washington and then when, when uh, Steve left, uh, Cato to start Club for Growth, I went with him and I was at Club for Growth from the founding of it through the 2004 cycle. And I was the only one who quit on the conference call when they announced they were firing Steve, which I found insane uh, when the board of directors ousted him. And so uh, that's when we started Free Enterprise Fund, which was a relatively short-lived organization, but did uh, win a major victory at the Supreme Court in uh, Free Enterprise Fund versus Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, which was the case that found uh, that the uh, the way that board was constituted in the Sarbanes-Oxley law was unconstitutional. Unfortunately, they didn't strike down the whole law like we wanted them to. They just uh, said that the uh, members of the board could be removed at will. So it was a relatively minor, uh, you know, a narrowly tailored remedy, uh, unfortunately. Uh, and then uh, Steve went to the Wall Street Journal 
I went to Americans for Prosperity and I was there for about five years. That's kind of the, uh, the, the main political and policy advocacy entity of sort of the Koch seminar network. And uh, we were really kind of the leaders in the fight the first few years of the Obama administration against card check and cap and trade and Obamacare. And uh, we stopped two out of three. We weren't able to stop Obamacare, unfortunately. Uh, and then in 2012, I started my own organization, American Commitment, which is a free market advocacy group. And we really try to focus on the fights that are on the margin. It really could go either in either direction. We're a little bit of citizen engagement and education and uh, getting letters into Congress or into regulatory agencies or into the White House can actually tip an outcome in a free market direction. And so that's uh, uh, kind of the main organization I've been running for the last nine years or so. And then about a year ago, Steve Moore asked me if I would also come in and help at Committee to Unleash Prosperity, which is the 501c3 educational foundation that he started with uh, Art Laffer and Steve Forbes and um, Larry Kudlow. And Kudlow had left to join the, the Trump administration. And so uh, in a sense, I was sort of uh, backfilling uh, a, a very partial replacement for Larry Kudlow. And, uh, you know, I, I've uh, been, you know, it was a weird year. I thought we'd be focused on economics and you know, supply side economics. Instead, it ended up being almost all uh, COVID analysis and lockdowns and just, you know, the, the way, what the year ended up being. Uh, but we, uh, at some point, uh, just a week or two into lockdowns, we said, we're going we're to do a daily newsletter for as long as these lockdowns last. And it's, uh, it's pretty much become, you know, kind of a permanent ongoing publication, uh, basically, because uh, the lockdowns seem to be interminable. But I, I also think, you know, because people like it so much, we're probably going to keep it going, even if we can and the lockdowns and uh, the kind of the, the main kind of staff writer for it is John Fund, who sends me, you know, four or five items a day, typically. And then I'll take those four or five items and I'll add, you know, usually three or four of my own uh, and, and some pictures. And uh, we usually try to put a joke in there at the end to you know, give people a smile after all the serious stuff up top. And then I, I put the draft together each night uh, and send it around and then Steve edits it and he maybe adds an item or two and uh, then we go back around with edits in the morning and then we send it out and, you know we had them sending it morning and our uh, email guru says the lunchtime hour is better for email so we've been doing that lately so I don't know uh, we may go back to morning stuff because we, we did this survey and asked people what time of day they like and everyone's saying morning so yeah uh, we may change it back to mornings people seem to like that better but uh, the uh, the the, the the email newsletter expert guy told us noon hour. So we've been trying that. Uh, we may, I, I don't know, but that's basically the process. Um, I don't know if you have a more specific question about it than that. No, or I, that other biographical stuff I put in there. Uh, well, you've given me a couple of gems there, first of all, that it, as, as usual, it, it began with, uh, with Ayn Rand and Atlas Shrugged, um, and also now the editorial conveyor belt of the hotline. Uh, I guys... have to say, though, I think at 12, I skipped the radio speech, to be honest. <laughs> well, um, we, are we are returning the favor. We have crafted and we have sent, and I know you have received the Anthem graphic novel specifically for your kids, and we've just come out with the Red Pond graphic novel. So, But I, I send those all to Joanna because uh, they, they do have some more mature content and we do want uh, parental approval before 
you get those into uh, into sensitive young hands. So, um, so, and I'm glad to know this, the, the process also, uh, we've had on this show, we've had Steve Moore, we've had uh, John Fund, we now have you, and uh, I'm going to make it my goal this year to get Art and Larry, uh, and of course, uh, Steve Forbes, a great supporter of the Atlas Society, on the show and keep this, keep this going. So um, speaking of books, Phil, your, your book, Democracy Denied, uh, has a subtitle, How Obama is, was ignoring you and bypassing Congress to radically transform America. Uh, are, are we about to get phase two of this plan? Well, you know, I would have, if you asked me the same question about a week ago, I would have said, well, you know, you're going to have gridlock with the Republican Senate. And so, of course, everything's going to be in the regulatory agencies. That's not as much the case now. Uh, we're going to see some elements of the policy agenda, uh, unfortunately, move legislatively now uh, with the consequence of the Democrats taking the Senate, although they're going to be somewhat limited uh, because of Senate rules. They'll be able to do tax hikes, unfortunately, and spending uh, through excuse me, the budget reconciliation process, and they may be able to get some, some policy uh, changes through that way as well. But, you know, the major big ticket policies uh, are going to be in the agencies. It's going to be very similar to the last six years of Obama in that regard. And this is a long-term trend. It's a multi-decade trend uh, in which Congress passes broad, vague laws and essentially uh, outsources the real decision-making to the bureaucracy. And so we've got vast areas of public policy now uh, where you don't have to go back to Congress to make major changes in policy, where uh, you can do it through the regulatory process. And so that's really going to be our major focus at American Commitment is trying to, fix, is trying to pick the most significant regulatory fights that, that can actually be influenced and try to get public engagement in the comment dockets and shine a spotlight uh, in terms of media attention, public opinion, try to get congressional engagement in terms of oversight and, and maybe try to stop you know, a few of the most egregious. And of course, uh, we're also going to see litigation on all of these matters as well. And, you know, the one different alignment we have now, um, as opposed to during the Obama era, is we may have a stronger Supreme Court now on some of these issues. And uh, that uh, may change the playing field considerably. For instance, you know, kind of the, one of the biggest areas that I talked about in the book was how the entirety of uh, climate policy had been uh, sort of handed over to EPA uh, by the Supreme Court in Massachusetts versus EPA, which said, you know, you can regulate greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act, uh, which was, of course, never designed for that purpose and was very ill-fitting for that purpose. And Obama went ahead uh, and proceeded with that. Trump's now undone it. And of course, we will see greenhouse gas regulations under Biden, but we may have a Supreme Court that no longer agrees with Massachusetts versus EPA because, uh, you know, it was a 5-4 decision with Kennedy and four liberals uh, forming uh, the majority, and now, you know, there could be as many as six votes the other way. And so uh, potentially the litigation approach uh, may be able to stop some of these things. But yeah, I do think that we're going to see uh, a lot of the uh, economic decision-making and policy-making occurring in the agencies. And, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot, unfortunately, of pendulum swinging of the same Obama policies that were so economically harmful that uh, President Trump reversed being reimposed. And uh, that's going to going, I think, to be a major theme of the next few years is kind of that that regulatory pendulum. And of course, that's why this is such a dis this is one of the reasons it's such a destructive way to create policy. Why it would be much better if we followed the constitutional process of having 
uh, the legislature write laws with some degree of specificity themselves instead of just punting everything uh, to the bureaucrats um, because we'd have much more policy stability over time. Uh, legislating is much more difficult uh, than just winning the presidential election and then that unlocking the power to flip you know, vast areas of policy uh, back and forth. And so uh, to answer your question, yes, um, though I am you know, slightly more optimistic that we may be able to stop some of these things uh, in the courts that we weren't able to that. Excellent. So uh, I do want to get to some of the questions from the audience. I want to encourage the audience, if possible, if you can make your questions somewhat short and concise, I'll be able to, uh, to, to read them and convey them, or at least get the gist of them. Um, and over to Phil, I do have one great brief question here from Mark Shoup, one of our regulars. He asks briefly, how does your supply side brand of economics differ from Austrian and or classical liberalism? Well, um, I think there's a lot of overlap. Uh, you know, I think that um, I think probably. I think it's probably. I think it's probably. Uh, it, it's probably the. Uh, you know, our principal focus is not monetary. Uh, we we don't do much. Uh, we don't do much uh, in terms of monetary policy. It's not to say that we don't think it's important. It's just that sort of as a matter of kind of uh, political advocacy, you uh, can't affect Fed policy very much, and to the extent that that's what's driving business cycles. You can't do very much about that. And so I think that we're, our, our focus is really on sort of the fiscal and regulatory policies. And uh, you know, so sort of on sort of the core, that sort of, sort of the, the core monetary questions, I might agree or disagree, but it's just not something we focus on very much. Well, we, we have a request out to uh, Judy Shelton to come and, and join us and uh, someone I've known for a long time. and. She, she will be in the future. I, I think uh, it, it may be a few months, but, um, but we might have a chance to talk to her a little bit more about uh, those monetary policy questions. So um, question from Jeff Rem Remboldt, uh, who wants to know why were the public health uh, people not telling, public health people not telling the public to take vitamins while they were waiting for uh, vaccines? So I guess, yeah, this is a really good question because um, we've got like 30 studies now that show there's a major uh, relationship between vitamin D uh, deficiency and insufficiency and susceptibility to coronavirus. And we had some of these very, very early on. And so, you know, I think in you know, March or April, uh, Ireland was already recommending vitamin D supplementation. And, uh, you know, more recently, I know the United Kingdom supplemented every nursing home resident in the country with vitamin D. And uh, we've had some, we've, other than a few studies, I've not seen anything in the U.S. And, you know, the fact that this is a pretty well-known relationship explains a lot about this epidemic because, you know, you've got chronic vitamin D deficiency in the nursing home population where you've got an enormous number of these deaths. You've got it in dark-skinned minority populations who have, this, who have a disproportionate impact. And you have it in New York City where almost mm -hmm. everyone is vitamin D deficient because they're in canyons of buildings. Even when they're outside, they're not getting any sunlight. And, uh, you know, I've seen, I, I saw some reporting that a doctor said, you know, a New York City doctor said, if I find a patient who's not vitamin D deficient, I'm surprised. So, I mean, it's, mm -hmm. uh, it does tend to explain a lot about this. And there, there's actually even some randomized clinical trial evidence because uh, there have been a couple of trials now that supplemented vitamin D and found a significant, 
statistically significant impact. And this has uh, been sort of a pattern, uh, not just with vitamin D, but with other uh, low cost early treatments and preventatives, uh, there just seems to be almost no interest in them. Um, and I find that very odd because, you know, maybe they wouldn't be very effective, you know, maybe it wouldn't be very effective, but maybe it would, first of all, there's a lot of evidence suggesting that it might be. And even if it's not, you know, it's much better for people psychologically to think mm -hmm. I'm doing something, I'm doing something that's going to make a difference. I'm optimistic. And even, and even if an early treatment or a preventive has no benefit other than a placebo effect, a placebo effect is a real thing. It matters whether you're, whether you're confident, whether you're upbeat, whether you're optimistic, that, that improves your outcomes with any disease. And so this idea that we're not going to do any early treatment, people go into a doctor when they test positive, they have COVID and the doctor says, go home, don't do anything. If it gets really bad and you're going to, you know, you can't breathe, go to an emergency room. Uh, I think that's a very poor practice of medicine. I think that, you know, whatever the best early intervention treatments are based on the current state of the literature. And obviously people can debate that whether it's just, vitamin D and zinc supplementation, or whether you either use something like ivermectin, which has some studies now, or even early on when it looked like hydroxychloroquine was the thing, you know, whatever the, the current state of affairs is, I think it's much better for a doctor to be able to tell a patient, you know, this might help you, I'm going to prescribe it, see how it goes, uh, than to say, do not, I'm going to do nothing and, uh, you know, go home. And if you can't breathe, go to an emergency room. And so I think the lack of any early treatment is, is one of the bad decisions that we've made with this, even if we don't have really, really high quality proof uh, that these things are helpful. We've got a number of them that we know are not harmful. And uh, there is suggestive evidence they could be helpful. And certainly I put vitamin D in that category. And of course, the fact that we told people to hide in their homes and not to get any sunlight probably mm -hmm. worsened the susceptibility to disease um, because we, we, uh, they weren't getting vitamin D naturally and we weren't telling them to supplement either. And also the kind of the seasonal pattern here, you know, to the extent that lockdowns did delay infections, what do we do? We push them into the winter when people are more susceptible. Uh, and so, you know, I think there is a lot to that. Uh, they, there's a lot of support in the literature for it. It's not like taking a vitamin D supplement is going to mean you can't get COVID, but statistically, it probably does improve your chances. Yeah, well, it's something that's been very uh, frustrating to me because, you know, aside from even the studies specifically on vitamin D deficiency and COVID uh, susceptibility, there is a vast body of research on um, how to support your immune system and also the effects of vitamin D deficiency on susceptibility to a variety, not just of respiratory uh, illnesses, but, but even um, cancers. All of the years that I spent at the Dole Nutrition Institute, uh, this was a particular interest. And also talking about um, obesity and uh, that obesity in and of itself, that, that visceral fat is like another organ of the body that it, it does pump um, uh, and, substances. And, and for locking teeth. people in their kitchens is not a good way to uh, improve the obesity problem. And I can say this from experience of <laughs> past year, I've gained quite a lot of weight, but I need to work on that this year. Uh, you know, I, our policies are very poorly designed uh, for reducing the known risk factors. Uh, and, and you're absolutely right. Uh, just as a matter of basic public health, whether COVID existed or not, we should have been telling people to get their D levels checked and to supplement if they're if they're below the reference range, uh, but we, we haven't been doing that.
Yeah, you know, and I think that there's also a lot of opportunity here for entrepreneurs. Um, I, I think one of the things that, that I've seen, I've been encouraged by so many people who sprang forward to, to meet these needs in, in the marketplace, but there are just also so many, many more opportunities. I mean, we're talking about rapid testing and, and vaccines, but just even the kinds of uh, at-home vitamin, you know, deficiency and of course, vitamin D is not a vitamin, actually, it's, it's a hormone, um, are things that, uh, that we should be encouraging people to, to take a look at and get rich and solve. Well, you know, I'll tell you, one of the things, one of the most surprising charts of the past year, I'm not sure if you've seen this one, uh, but business starts actually went up dramatically. And so, you know, a lot of businesses have been destroyed, a hard, really shocking, disturbing number of businesses have been destroyed by lockdown. But um, you know, it's hard to keep people, if people have an entrepreneurial spirit, it's hard to keep them down. So they look for, you know, they have people are starting, you know, deep cleaning businesses and, you know, all kinds of pe people who look, you know, delivery of this, that, and the other thing, all pe people are looking for opportunities and they are creating a lot of new businesses. Uh, well, you know, they, we focus a lot on how many have been destroyed, uh, but there have been a lot of business starts in the past year as well. All right, I wanna encourage um, those watching to, to bring us your questions, uh, but we also do have a question that was uh, previously submitted by our mutual friend, Grover Norquist, previous guest on this show. And he asks broadly uh, your perspective on how did states and nations that had shutdowns compare with those with less severe shutdowns? We're talking just a bit about this uh, right before we jumped on air. Yeah, the, uh, it, it's interesting because when policy interventions are announced, you do see sort of, um, you, you do see an effect of the announcement of new policy interventions. You see it, you do see a decline uh, in sort of the uh, infect, infection rate, sort of the, the rate of increase does tend to moderate a little bit after new policy interventions are announced. Um, but that happens whether you announce the most draconian lockdown in the world or whether you come out and say people should wash their hands more. Uh, there seems to be almost no relationship between the severity of a newly announced policy and the effect that it has on transmission. Uh, so it seems, you know, announcing something, telling people that, you know, they, it's so bad that we need to do X new thing, that does seem to have a little bit of an effect on behavior that, that changes uh, outcomes a little bit. But the content of that announcement and the severity of it seems to matter uh, very little or not at all. And uh, that's not just my impression. There was a study in Nature, one of the uh, sort of the prestige medical journals that reached this conclusion, uh, which uh, was a little bit surprising because they've been pushing a lot of the lockdown uh, material. And there are now several, many studies that have reached basically the conclusion that full lockdowns have very little effect on the progression of the disease. Now, there is an exception to that, which is, you know, countries that have almost no uh, incidence of the disease when they lock down, if they're also controlling borders, they can largely keep it out. And I think that's what happened uh, in Australia and New Zealand. But uh, the, if you look at the pre-pandemic planning guidance from the CDC, they say, and I think they were right about this, I wish they remembered it, they say that uh, once you have 1% of a community that's infected, uh, it's pointless to attempt that, that kind of uh, mitigation. Uh, it, 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 you will not be able to contain the infection no matter how aggressive you are. And of course, you know, by the time Europe and the US even were aware of this thing, it had already spread 
you know, far more than 1%. And so it was impossible to put the genie back in the bottle uh, through lockdown. And to even more directly answer your question, uh, you see very similar disease curves in states that have wildly different interventions. It seems to be they rise and fall seasonally and regionally. And all of the states in a region will tend to light up at the same time and then will tend to come back down at the same time. And so, for instance, a lot has been made of how North Dakota adopted a mask mandate and some business restrictions, and they had this very high peak, and then they came down, and that must mean that it was effective. And if you look at just North Dakota, that picture kind of looks right. But then you add South Dakota to the chart, which did none of those things, imposed no restrictions, no mask mandate, nothing uh, really other than voluntary measures. And, and uh, they have the exact same curve, essentially. They go up and down. And so do other states in the region. You had, you had Iowa with the same chart, and it's basically the same as well. And, um, you know, I, I think that whatever sort of drives, I think it may be temperature and humidity conditions, it may be uh, it's, you know, somehow solar radiation acts upon uh, the virus or makes us more or less susceptible because of vitamin D or some other mechanism. But I think that whatever's going on um, is happening seasonally and it's happening regionally and our ability to affect it through policy is very, very limited. Uh, the only reliable uh, outcome of these policies is the cost, the downside that they impose. Uh, the benefits are very unclear. Uh, and yet we act like it's sort of obvious when things are bad, you've got to lock everything down. Uh, and we're still doing that. And in fact, uh, Jennifer, one of the things I really worry about right now in California, which is by far the worst in the whole country uh, in terms of uh, disease burden, is the lockdown, when you lock down, if you already have a very high level of infection, you create sort of a, an echo boom in which people infect everyone else in their home. Because if you're only home, you know, everyone's going to work, they're going to school, they say, you're not necessarily gonna have transmission in the home. And in fact, the attack rate in, in the home is only about 18% under normal conditions. That's the best study that we have, the meta-analysis that was in the Journal of the American Medical Association. But I think, if you were in, in a real stay-at-home type lockdown situation, it's probably you know three or four or five times that because you're you're in close quarters locked in 24/7. If somebody has it, everyone in the house gets it. If you have multi-generational families, then uh, you're going to get potentially older people who are very vulnerable for hospitalization and death. And you know one of the reasons that quarantine policies seem to be somewhat more successful in some Asian countries is. They almost all did some form of, uh, of you know, quarantine hotel where infected people weren't sent home. They were sent to a, a facility where they would not infect their family members. And, um, you know, I think doing that on a mandatory basis is obviously insane and we should never do it in the U.S. or even consider it. And I don't think we ever would. Uh, but I've been a little bit surprised. We haven't even offered it as a voluntary thing to say, hey, you know, we'll get you a hotel room so you don't infect your family. No place in the U.S. has done that. Where we impose these lockdowns uh, as if we've learned nothing. You know, when, when New York was at the peak of their totally disastrous uh, meltdown in the spring, they did a survey of patients who were in the hospital to figure out where they got the infection. And they were, they almost all of them got it at home, almost all of them. Uh, and, you know, the lesson from that should have been stay at home orders are not the way to deal with this. That it, it actually creates sort of this, this ratchet up that makes it worse. And yet here we are, you know, almost a year later and California is adopting the exact same policy with the same apparent results. And so 
Uh, I think that the effects are very, very limited. And in some circumstances where you already have very high incidence, uh, they could be potentially uh, even counterproductive uh, because of that in-home transmission. Um, so a question here from Vicki, uh, who wants to know, what about the impact of age on the probability of getting COVID? Uh, does it make sense to keep the schools closed? Uh, the age, the age, um, the age stratification for this disease is extremely steep. Uh, under age 20, it is considerably less dangerous than influenza. And the CDC's best estimate, uh, they have the infection survival rate uh, for children under age 20 at 99.997%. That's in their theoretical model. If you look at their, uh, their, their recent actual published stats, they have it even lower than that. They have it about, uh, they have been, fatality rate even lower than that, the survival rate even higher. They have it at about 99.999% uh, for under age 20. And so for under age 20, this is considerably less dangerous than influenza. Influenza is five to 10 times more likely to kill uh, children. Although with influenza missing this year, uh, that's, you know, you could even say in a sense indirectly that COVID is saving the lives of children if in fact it's disrupting uh, influenza. We've got one pediatric influenza death reported uh, in this season, which is now 13 weeks old, which is extremely unusual. We have several hundred every year. Uh, and so influenza is much more dangerous for children. Uh, schools should 100% be open. Uh, the school closures were based on irrational fear and then based on politics. They were never based on fact, science, or logic. And uh, children almost never infect adults. They do occasionally, but it's not a significant source of spread. And so uh, the, the exposure risk by profession that we've seen from Sweden and from other countries where schools have been open show that teaching is not a high-risk profession. It's a relatively average, uh, it's very close to average, perhaps even slightly below average risk um, because most of your contacts are with children who are unlikely to have the, the uh, infection. If they do have it, are unlikely to be highly infectious. Children can sometimes be infectious, uh, but when they are, they're usually highly symptomatic. And so as long as people mm. aren't coming their kids to school when they're highly symptomatic, they're probably not gonna infect anyone. And in fact, we've seen very, very little in-school transmission. Even uh, Fauci has agreed with that after previously arguing for school closures. And so. Uh, the school closures are probably the worst of all of the interventions in terms of the risk reward uh, cost benefit trade-off. They have essentially zero benefit and the costs are absolutely staggering. We've got, uh, you know, the, the life years lost from school closures are going to be far, far greater than the total life years lost uh, from COVID. Uh, in fact, there was one study that looked at just two months of just elementary school uh, lockdowns from the spring and they estimated it would cost 5.5 million lost life years. Um, so, you know, you, you think about the implications of that, uh, you know, the difference, I think the difference right now in life expectancy between a high school graduate and a high school dropout is about five years of life expectancy. And so, uh, you know, the educational damage that we're doing by having schools closed, um, it's going to have staggering health effects and income effects downstream. There's no benefit uh, to it. Uh, really at all, uh, the, the community transmission impact is negligible and children are not at risk. And so I, I really would like to see schools open or if they're not open, uh, perhaps even better, uh, I would like to see us have a, an emergency scholarship program where you can get essentially a universal voucher if your local public school 
refuses to open, you should be able to take those funds to go to a school that is open or to homeschool and uh, you know to create the demand for alternative uh, educational arrangements so the kids aren't just left by the wayside. And uh, you know, I, I was glad to see that President Trump finally had, did an executive order on the emergency scholarship idea, something we've been pushing for I think six months now. Uh, remains to be seen if any of that money will actually get out the door uh, before he leaves office, though. Well, we have oh, a and, and just Jennifer to address the other side of that, which I left out. Uh, the deaths are overwhelmingly over age 65. Uh, overall in the U.S., there about 80% of the COVID deaths are above age 65. Uh, in the last few weeks, it's been higher than that. It's been about 84 or 85%. And that's why the vaccine distribution really should be done by age. Unfortunately, the CDC uh, was persuaded by social justice logic that because old people are whiter than young people on a population basis that we should do essential workers first, uh, even though there's very little evidence that essential workers have higher disease burden than non-essential workers, uh, rather than doing it, uh, doing seniors first. And even though they agreed, even though the CDC did recommend doing um, nursing home residents first, that rollout has been slow. Uh, we've not done a great job of getting those vaccines actually uh, you know, into people's arms. And so uh, the vaccine prioritization, we really need to just push on this right now, I think, to you know, get it to the people who are at serious risk of hospitalization and death, which is our seniors. Uh, you know, I would like us to be able to say to every senior in this country, if you want the vaccine, you can have the vaccine. And I, I, we ought to be able to do that within the next month. And uh, you know, after we've done that, then, then focus on those lower age groups where the risk is much lower. We have about uh, 13 more minutes. So maybe time for one or two um, more questions uh, from our audience. If you guys uh, can send your last minute short questions over to us either on YouTube or in the Zoom chat. Um, and meanwhile, Phil, I wanted to ask, about you, uh, Joanna, of course, is a lawyer. You have four young children um, at, at home. And uh, how has your experience been? Have they been in school, learning remotely? We've got, uh, our, kids go to, our kids go to a Catholic school. Um, and they, they've only been allowed to go to school two days a week. And so the other three, they're uh, doing you know, the Zooms and whatnot. Uh, and the two days they are allowed to go to school, it's like a prison school. I mean, they, they came up with these insane rules. You can't even imagine. They're like, you, know, you can't, you know, they, they can't, like, you know, they're not allowed to, they don't have any of their specials. Instead, like the gym teacher comes on a video and they do it at their desk. And, you know, they, they're not allowed to play with balls at recess. And, you know, they, it's like they took every recommendation that's out there and then they made them like 10 times crazier and stricter. And it's, uh, so it's been a very challenging year uh, from that standpoint, uh, you know, um, and it's been frustrating because you know DC put out these guidelines, uh, you know, early on that said they they created a class size cap of I think eleven kids per class, and I think that's what caused you know all of the private schools to sort of say well you know we we can't do full time instruction we're going to go part and then DC clarified. No, actually, those didn't apply to private schools. Uh, they, you know, well, we, I don't know why you thought they applied. Uh, they were only for the public schools. And sort of by then, you know, the schools got sort of locked into this is our plan and we don't want to change it. And uh, so it's like a, it's a really tough situation because if the government were doing it, we could like go sue them. But if the government said it and then they said, oh, but you don't actually have to follow it now. It's now you're who you're arguing with, the principal, the diocese, you know, it's sort of 
So I think it's going to stay that way all school year. I hope it doesn't, you know, uh, but I think it's going to. And, um, you know, it's hard for the kids. It's hard for them not to be with their friends. You know, what we've been trying to do is just give them as many activities as possible, as much normal social interaction as possible. So basically everything that's not prohibited, we have them signed up for. And so they do, you know, all kinds of sports and activities and stuff like that. Uh, but it's, it's been really tough for them. And of course, that means it's been really tough for us. And, you know, you know I've been, you know, I sort of took on a second job doing the committee stuff with Steve, the same time I'm doing American Commitment. So I've been doing more work than ever over the past year while we're dealing with all of this with the kids. And, you know, my wife's a lawyer who specializes in employee benefits. So all of her clients have been calling nonstop, you know, for all of the benefits issues related to all the things that are going on. And uh, so it was a tough year. Oh, the other thing I didn't even mention is uh, like the first week of lockdown, my mom passed away which not not of COVID, but, you know, we had to do an online memorial and all this kind of stuff. And so it was, uh, it was, you know, I look, it was a hard year for everyone, but it was definitely a hard year for us. Uh, But, you know, we really, we're fortunate in many ways. Obviously we can, we we can largely work from home. We largely have flexible schedules. We have the ability to support the kids. You know, I, I do think though, people who have relatively large families have a much harder uh, situation, have much harder time dealing with, you know, the disruption of school, then people only have a, you know, if we had two kids, I feel it would be much more manageable than four. Uh, you know, when we, when we, when we decided to have four kids, we assumed that schools would exist as a place for them to go five days a week. We didn't really plan for a contingency like this one. So yeah, it has been challenging, but uh, you know, in many ways we, ha- in many ways we have it, you know, I mean, it, it's kind of like being in a prison, but it's a really nice fancy place, <laughs> a nice house and, you know, you have stuff and you, know, you have internet and all this and so it's, um, I don't know, it is what it is. Uh, I hope it doesn't last all that much longer. Uh, you know, obviously the vaccine rollout uh, is going to be really important for people to have the confidence to return to normal social interaction. I always say that, uh, you know, politicians are uh, followers, not leaders. And I think this will all end when people want it to end, when they've had enough. And obviously people who think like us were there, you know, two days into it. Uh, but we weren't the majority. And, and uh, the question I think is when the people who sort of bought into all the panic and fear are comfortable with, you know, okay, I'm ready to go back to, I think it's going to be when they've got the vaccine in their arm. And so, uh, you know, I'm hoping that the Johnson and Johnson will be approved uh, because that's a one dose vaccine and, uh, you know, they'll be able to ramp up production. And, and this thing I hope will go, you know, relatively quickly. It's been a little bit slow going though. Only about 5,000, only about five and a half million people so far. I've actually got a vaccine dose and uh, it's been three weeks and that's not a great pace. We need to pick that up uh, because at that pace it's going to take a whole year to vaccinate the adult population. And uh, I, I can't do another year like this. So I'm hoping they'll, they'll step it up. Well, yes, it's been a, a challenging year for family. Um, I've also spent a lot of the past year with my elderly parents in San Francisco, uh, trying to, to help them out a, a bit. Glad to report my father got his first uh, dose of the vaccine. And as challenging as it's been, I'm sure you and Joanna can relate. I mean, we will look back at this time. And um, while there are many tragedies and many negative consequences, the bonds that we've built, the friendships that we've built, uh, the ways that we've learned to, to work together um, within a family unit under stress, and of course, um, what all of you guys have accomplished uh, over at the committee to unleash prosperity. So 
how can we find out more about you, Phil? Where do we follow you? How can how can we help get involved? Well, I just want to say, eventually we have to win, right? This, this can't yes. go on forever. So eventually we'll win and we'll claim victory. And, you know, so yeah, at least that, there's that. That's how I, I think, that's how I get through to say at some point we'll be able to say we won because that has to happen. Well, and then always, you know, there are these, uh, there are reversals. I mean, you know, this has been a, a year of, of tremendous reversals, the, the administration, the economic growth, all, all that was accomplished, many of the positive reforms. And then I've been amazed how fast the economy came back, even under sort of partial closure and, you know, so many states being away. I mean, it really shows the resilience of the American economy. And as I was saying, of entrepreneurs who, you know, get their business shut down and go figure out a new idea and start a new one. And it's a really remarkable uh, thing to look at sort of those positives that have come out of all these negatives. Uh, but to answer your question, uh, the best place to find me, American Commitment, which is the 501c4 advocacy group is AmericanCommitment.org, uh, Committee to Unleash Prosperity, which is the 501c3 educational organization that does the daily newsletter if people want to sign up for that a committee to unleash prosperity.com i'm also a twitter addict it's my last name kerpen k-e-r-p-e-n um i think that's basically it that's the main stuff uh we are i'm sure we have a facebook or something but the, the, i would say my twitter and the, the websites of the two organizations would be the best places to go well, spectacular. It's, it's, um, it's just been wonderful to spend this time with you, Phil, and to get to know you and Joanna a little better over the past year and um, benefited so much from your tremendous work. So I do encourage everybody to check it out and to support their efforts. Of course, if you enjoy our weekly webinars, if you enjoy our graphic novels, the animated video, the most recent of which will be featured in a future issue of the hotline, My Name is Property, uh, our Draw My Life on Property, then, uh, then please support us at uh, the Atlas Society and um, make sure to sign up for our newsletter as well so that you'll get updates on our future uh, webinars, including next week's is going to be with John Tierney uh, the author of The Future of Bad, and then, of course, the week after with my friend Mike Walsh, Michael Walsh, who is the author of Last Stands. So uh, we look forward to seeing you there. Phil, give my love to Joanna, and uh, we'll see you soon. All right, have a good one. Thank you.